Welcome to those of you who are joining us online, and welcome to those of you who are here today. I'm so glad that you could be with us. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor Graham. I'm the teaching pastor here at Elam Chapel, and today is the final installment in our Back to Basics series. We've been doing a series called The Building Blocks of the Christian Life, and I'm, uh, I'm excited about today, and I'm excited to share with you. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, you are so good. You're so good. That's it, God. That's all I have to say. You're so good. Be with us this morning. We need you so desperately. We can't do any of this without you. Open our hearts, open our minds that we can hear from you. Give us faith, just the size of a mustard seed, God. That's all we need. But we need it from you. Be with us today. In your name, amen. So when we started this series, The Building Blocks of the Christian Life, we said that the messages of this series were going to build on each other, and I think we analogized it to a house. Analogized? Is that a word? Good enough. I speak for a living. Can you tell? I think that's nowhere more apparent today than today, that that our messages are building on each other. We've been talking about a call to gather. That was our first message, was a call to gather. We talked about the importance of the Christian community and the church as we seek to follow Jesus. We've talked about a call to mercy, about the importance of kindness and love in our actions as we seek to be more like Jesus. And last week, we talked about the call to worship and what that looks like in our lives. Today, our message is called a call to holiness. And holiness is one of those words that can be pretty loaded for a lot of people. For some, it brings up images of the holiness movement, of tent meetings and evangelistic crusades. For others, holiness suggests severe and rigid elders tasked with expunging all fun and joy from life so that we can be holy. But for many of us, the idea of holiness is deeply tied to the idea of moral perfection. That as we become better moral people, we are becoming holier. And this isn't a bad idea. This week, my wife and I had what I thought was an interesting conversation. I mean, we both have things about our lives, behaviors that we would like to change. And we asked each other, if you were the person that you wish you were, what would tomorrow look like? Because, of course, we had this conversation late in the evening, right? What would tomorrow look like if you were the person that you wish that you were? And that's a pretty good question because there's some merit to the idea that identity follows action, right? That if you start doing the things that good people do, eventually you'll be a good person. So, ask yourself, if you were the person that you wish that you were, What would Sunday afternoon, today, what would it look like? If you were suddenly infused with character and discipline and energy to be the person that you wish you could be, would you invite someone new out for lunch and pay for it? Would you meal prep for the week to come? Would you finally take care of that chore in the house that's been bothering you? In my house, it's painting the doors in the basement. That's what I would do if I was the person that I wish I was. Is there a sin that you would drop today? Done. Is there a job that you would quit? Would you make a phone call that you've been dreading? 
Would you confess your love to someone? Right? What would you do if you were the person that you wish that you were? And the idea of personal improvement is not something unique to our society. In fact, it's a significant part of the Bible's instruction to us in how we live rightly. The Old Testament contains more textual variety. There's lots of different writings in the Old Testament. But in terms of looking for an example, the New Testament is just about throw a rock and you'll hit one. Right? Like in terms of of finding this kind of encouragement. You could just about throw the Bible up in the air and wherever it lands open, you'll find an encouragement of this type to live more holy, more moral, upright lives. One of my favorite examples comes from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, where he gives what reads almost like a checklist. They're just these short little verses. He says, Rejoice always. He says, Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all and hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Check, check, check. Do you see it? It almost reads like that. This is a great and beautiful idea of holiness and what it means. The desire for right action, to love justice, to avoid sin. This is a good thing. Don't discard it. I'll give, I'll give you a but in a minute, but don't take that as discarding this idea, okay? Personal holiness is something that we strive for, and moral uprightness is still something that we pursue. But there is a problem that comes with this idea of holiness, and that is the separation that so often follows. Have you ever had that experience? Someone who you have perceived as so holy that they don't want to associate with we sinners? Have you had this experience? Yeah, it's far too common in my experience. Or maybe if you want to be able to disassociate a little bit with the problem, you could think back to the first century and think of the Pharisees walking through the markets where no one was allowed to touch them. And there is a certain merit to this idea from the Bible, though I would argue that in our context today, it is misguided. You see, in the New Testament, the call that we read so often is to moral purity. But in the Old Testament, the call is, well, it's not that there isn't a call to moral purity in the Old Testament. There certainly is. But there's this additional layer that is a big part of what the Old Testament has to say, and it's called ritual purity. And ritual purity is important if you want to be able to interact with God, which Israel was doing constantly, especially the priests. Because God is holy, and that holiness is dangerous if you are not pure. There's an idea in Christian theology that heaven and hell are the same physical location. I'm not personally convinced of this idea, but it's useful to illustrate. That heaven and hell are the same location, and that the difference is you. That the difference is whether you are greeted warmly by God's holiness or burned by it. There's a saying that I like that illustrates this idea. The same boiling water that softens a potato hardens an egg. Right? So the difference is us. 
Now, Jesus makes us pure so that we can enter the presence of God and not need to be concerned with ritual purity, right? This is one of the great bonuses of being a New Testament church. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament. Virtually all of the book of Leviticus, if you decide to read it, I don't highly recommend it. It's a bit of a slog. But the whole book of Leviticus really is instruction for the priests or the Levites, which is where the name of the book comes from, on how to be ritually pure so that being in the presence of God doesn't kill them. They will die. In fact, this is a major concern. When Moses meets God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, almost the first thing that God says is, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. God is saying, Moses, don't come. You will die if you come any closer. Stop there. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we read about the Ark of the Covenant being transported from one location to another, and some guy, not a priest, not ritually pure, just some guy who is concerned, reaches out to steady the Ark because the road is bumpy. They must have been in Winnipeg. He reaches out to steady the Ark, and then when he touches it, he drops dead on the spot. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we read another example of God's purity and the danger that it poses to humans. Starting in verse 1, I love these verses. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah speaking, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they were flying, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And they were calling to one another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Do you see it? Isaiah is going, I am going to die. And not in the like philosophical future. It's like I am about to be killed because I'm standing somewhere that I cannot bear to be. We'll come back to this story. Ritual impurity was a big deal. And the problem with it is that it's contagious. No vaccines, no wearing masks stops ritual impurity. So, for example, if you touch a dead body, you become ritually unclean. But anyone that you touch then also becomes ritually unclean. Now, being unclean isn't necessarily a sin. It's not as if the dead were not supposed to be taken care of, right? So, so becoming unclean from touching a dead body, that's not sin, It just means that you can't go into the temple for a certain period for your own safety. And so what we see over and over through the Mosaic Law is this idea that if the pure touches the impure, it becomes defiled, right? The impurity is contagious. But God flips this on its head. Back to Isaiah, do you remember what happens next in this story? Isaiah says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, 
which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So when the pure coal touches Isaiah, his impurity doesn't stain it. In fact, the holiness of the coal somehow transfers to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He is transformed by it. Another example is when Jesus comes, Jesus is God with skin on. He is totally holy, and yet he is living among us. And my favorite example of this idea happens almost first thing in the Gospel of Mark. It's in chapter 1, verses 40 to 42. A man with leprosy came to him and begged Jesus on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Because remember, leprosy is ritual uncleanness. It's also a horrible disease that will kill you, but it's also ritual uncleanness. And Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. (gasps) I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. There's so much to love here, but the important thing to highlight today is this idea that when Jesus touched the impure man, Jesus did not get infected. Jesus made the unclean clean, which is mind-blowing. We don't treat anything like that. That doesn't happen. The closest thing that I can think of is water, right, and how it makes you clean when you're dirty, but the dirtiness doesn't just disappear. It goes into the water, and then we throw that water away, right? The water isn't still clean after you wash yourself in it. But this goes one step further, No longer do we worship in a temple fearful of the presence of God. Do you remember why? Because our bodies are now the temple of the living God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We don't need to purify ourselves in preparation for entering the presence of God. If you're a follower of Christ and you've confessed Jesus as Lord, then the presence of God goes wherever you go. And then Jesus sends us out into the world. The clean, the pure, the holy, sent into the world, not to become defiled by the world, but to purify the world. Jesus calls us salt and light in Matthew chapter 5. Salt is a preservative. It fights against decay and light. Well, that's pretty much self-explanatory. This feels to me like we need to circle back and look again at what it means to be holy. There is an aspect of moral purity, but not stuffiness, right? We can hold that intention. Holiness is not self-righteousness. In fact, strictly speaking, the only thing that holy means is set apart. It means different. And I can give you three examples. The first, and most important, God is holy. And this means so many things, right? It it refers to God's great power, to his moral perfection, to him being the source of all life. But it also means that God is not like us. God is different. There are ways in which we are like God, yes, right? In Genesis 1, it says that we're created in his image and likeness. We are like him, but he's not like us. When we draw comparisons in that direction... We're doing it wrong. God's holiness 
is unparalleled. In the Gospels, when Jesus is trying to be really emphatic, he begins statements with a repetition. Many English Bibles render this as, truly, truly. Have you noticed this? Truly, truly, I say to you. Nod. Have you noticed this? Yeah, okay. When the Bible speaks of God's holiness, it doesn't use a double emphasis, right? It's not, holy, holy is the Lord. It's, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We, you get the impression that you could just keep adding holies. We could just be at this all day. Holy, 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 holy is the Lord Almighty. Because God is holy. God is different. But God isn't the only thing that's holy, even if God is in his own category of holiness. Items can also be holy. And in this context, it means set apart for a particular purpose. For a while, as an example, our daughter seemed to be having an allergic reaction to eggs. And so what we did was we took one spatula out of our kitchen and we said, this one can't touch eggs. We'll use this to cook her food and no eggs will touch it. We set it apart. You could say that we made it holy. And this is what we see in the Old Testament context around the temple constantly. They made special tools, they made special knives, they made special lamps. All the items of the temple were specifically for that purpose and no other. There was no, I'm going to borrow this stapler and take it home. That was the temple's stapler. The items were holy, they were set apart. And a third example, in the Old Testament, we also see that people can be holy. The nation of Israel was set apart and chosen by God, but even within Israel, God set apart the tribe of Levi, the Levites, to be his special possession and to serve as priests. They didn't get a share in the land. The Levites didn't get a share in the land because of them being God's special possession as the priests. The tribe of Levi was holy. They were set apart. The prophets, too, were set apart. And of course, sorry, I skipped ahead. We see people like David, right, the king, being set apart by God, being chosen specifically. He's anointed with oil. He's called by God, set apart. And the prophets, too, are set apart. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, we read these words that all of us put up on the walls of our babies' rooms for good reason. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. We don't usually put this part. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. But in the New Testament, God's call is not nearly so exclusive, and that is good news. In the New Testament, this special call, this holiness, is not only for priests and prophets and kings, it's for everyone. Peter writes a letter to Christians generally, which we refer to as 1 Peter, and this is a letter to Christians all over the world. And here's what he has to say about us. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says, You, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Did you catch how much holy, holiness language there is there? 
Obviously, there's actually the word holy, right? But chosen, priesthood, special possession, these are all holiness words. Every single one of us is called to be holy. All of us. There is no one excluded from this call. You don't get out of it by aging out. You don't get to avoid it by being too young. You don't get to plead, I'm just a man, I'm just a woman. You, you don't. There is no out. We are all called to this. Earlier in the same letter, Peter writes to the Christians, the same Christians, the all-over Christians, the you Christians. 1 Peter 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he, he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So, what does it mean to be holy? Let's make it really simple because we've talked about a lot of stuff. To be holy is to be different. When people look at you, when they look at your life, they should think, there's something different about this one. Holiness isn't ordinary. It is extraordinary. Look at your life. Think about it. In what ways are you different than your neighbors who don't know Christ? Do people look at your life and think, whoa, wait, what? Are there areas where people think that? And perhaps a more frightening question, in what ways are you exactly the same as your neighbors? I am forever afraid that there will be nothing in my life that marks me as separate. That non-Christians will look at my life and think, not just, oh, he's just like me, but Christians are just like us. That should never be the case. So, what can we do to make sure that it isn't? What are some practical ways that we can walk out this call to holiness in our lives? The short answer, of course, is you get closer to God. The more that we live out and engage with God's promise to conform us to the image of the Son that we see in Romans 8.29, the more different we will be. The right kind of different. But again, that's general. So here's three specific things that you can look at. And I believe that these are very hopeful because they are things that we can actually do with God's amazing help. The first is to have different priorities. Coming to church makes you different. Most people have other priorities on Sunday morning, even if it's just sleeping in. How many of us had to fight the urge to stay home and sleep in today? Come on, show of hands. Who had to fight that? But here's the thing. This isn't about coming to church once. You come to church all the time. Every week, rain, sleet, snow, you're there. Because coming to church matters. It's a priority. Or what about volunteering? Volunteering in church, do you have any idea how unusual it is for people to give their time for free to an organization? And I don't mean a one-off. Right? But to consistently show up, to be put on a schedule, to be part of what's happening. 
Tell someone that you give up every Friday night to come hang out with youth, and I promise you they will look at you like you're different. Giving also fits into this category. I have friends who are much better off financially than I am who look at me like I'm crazy because I give a tithe. That's 10%, by the way, and only 10%. 9% isn't a tithe, 11% isn't a tithe. The word means 10. So just so we're clear. But I have different priorities, right? Many of you are very generous with this church because you believe in what is happening here and you want to see it continue. You have different priorities and it marks you as set apart. The second thing that we can do is have different responses. This is about how we treat people. When people hurt, when people rejoice, when people are in need, how do you respond? Do you have kindness for people that most would rather ignore? Are you slow to anger, quick to forgive, quick to listen? Do you love your enemies? The way that we treat people quickly marks us out as set apart. And third, we can have different attitudes. This is about when life happens to you, how do you respond? When things are good, how do you present? When life takes an unexpected turn, how do you respond? When someone near and dear to you passes away, do you mourn like everyone else or does your hope shine through? When you take a step and you're not even sure where your foot is going to land, do you respond in faith and anchor yourself on God's goodness? Is praise and gratitude your go-to? This is the essence of the call to holiness. When we have different priorities, when we show the importance of God's work and God's people, do you know what we're doing? We're living the call to gather. And when we have different responses, when people hurt and we love, we're living the call to mercy. And when life storms blow and we anchor ourselves on God, we are living the call to worship. This is how we live the call to holiness. And that perhaps the people around us will see us the way that the people saw Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, or so they thought. And they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Oh, to be known as someone who has been with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, make us holy. Set us apart. You have called us. You have equipped us. You have shown us the path that you need each one of us to walk. Show us by your Holy Spirit where you would have us go. Speak to each one of us individually, Lord, about the path that you would have us walk, about the call to holiness that you have put on our lives. Make us more like your Son. We submit ourselves to you, God. We love you. We want to be more like you. We give you every part of us. We will serve you for all our days. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.